Glory, glory, win. Fire, fire, show far. <laughs> uh, you know, they've been doing that thing on Facebook 10 years ago. How you look 10 years ago and, oh, Lord, strengthen us. It's how we look today. I've just been thinking about because 10 years ago, <clears throat> it was November 11th, we were in our Bible school. And uh, I watched over a matter of weeks. We had a season of fasting and a season of prayer and the Lord break in. And I saw the Lord begin to lay hold of a proper British lawyer by the name of Wes Hall. And our, um, he was one of our longtime friend of mine. He was a teacher in Kansas City. And I was watching progressively, hearing stories of the Lord breaking into the first year class. And, but that was cool. But what was crazy was I was just seeing Wes go from a proper British lawyer, teacher, everything together. And he's just getting drunker and drunker by the day. And I'm talking about in the spirit and just, okay, that's a new term for some of you. Uh, <laughs> you know, on the day of Pentecost, we're not drunk as you suppose. <laughs> we're drunk, just not as you suppose. And, and uh, Wes was just getting more and more undone, and it was so unlike him. And I remember just we had a, it was November 10th, 2009. We had a staff meeting, a couple of about, 20 staff and Wes is completely just laughing hysterically just laughing and walking around prophesying over everybody and he whispered we had just gotten uh pregnant we have uh two daughters uh and there was a seven-year gap and we have all of our awakening babies right here and after a seven-year gap we had just conceived of our third child and told nobody just like a week before and Wes is just running around and he starts whispering in my ear, and you guys are pregnant. <laughs> you guys are pregnant. <laughs> That's my message. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray now. <laughs> That's deep. And so, uh, so anyway, that next morning, so I come home and I tell my wife, I go, Dana, something's up with Wes. Something's going on. Something's up. I don't know what's happening, but something's up. <laughs> I wake up that next morning at 7.30, he comes stumbling into the coffee shop saying, I don't even know what God's going to do this morning. And about 9 a.m. that morning, he goes, I'm going to class. I wonder what God's going to do today. And he takes off for his class. I grabbed 40 of our students. We were all running together. 40, we had 40 students, and I said, let's all go down there. And Wes is laying on his back, completely laughing at 9 a.m., and we walked into that room. And that meeting went for the next 15 hours where we saw the power of God hit, the wine, the fire, the wind, and God visited us in such a glorious way. And over the next 10 months, it was 7,000 testimonies of healing and deliverance and salvation and story after story after story as God broke off the spirit of religion and delivered people from self-hatred. And I'm just reminiscing in this season over what was going on 10 years ago as we were in the heat of just getting completely blasted in God. And I'm grateful for when God steps down and just wrecks us. Anyway, that was just because Billy started praying for me. But um, good. That wrecked me. That worship was beautiful, wasn't it? Is it okay? I, I really pretty much just took a... 12 gauge to a lot of your heads this morning. I just want to kind of feel right now. <laughs> that was so good this, that, this uh, evening, that worship. Lean back in his loving arms, the love of the Father. That's what I was speaking on this morning. I, I just think about it right now. I want to encourage you in this season, spend time with Abba just to be with him. Don't let it be an agenda. Don't let it be about what you're going to accomplish I was in a prayer set a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think there's anything more powerful in the world than when one of my daughters, I was just thinking about one of my, my youngest daughter just coming up to me and the power of a kid being able to overcome a dad's heart. And I just saw a vision of a little girl coming up to her dad saying, Dad, you're a good dad. <laughs> and how that just wrecks a dad's heart. And I just began to tell the father that. I just said, Father, you're a good dad. 
And as I, I said that to him, his heart just swelled. It just so touched me as the impact that we have on God. It's absolutely stunning. Anyway, good. All right, turn to Hosea 10. <laughs> We're going to pull out of that. You've been in the loving arms too long. Now it's time to put on your army boots. <laughs> I, I spoke, are, are there ways to get the messages that were spoken today? Yeah, everybody get the messages online. I did Psalm 1 and 2 at uh, a 9 a.m. service. I did Revelation twenty two seventeen at the 11 a.m. service. And I wanted to release uh, Hosea 10, verse 12, and kind of stay in the continuing uh, with the uh, revival series that you have going on. Everybody say the word revival. Amen. That's a good word. I feel like it's a word that's attacked, diminished in a lot of ways. And I, 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 and I believe that God wants to restore and give us a biblical view of revival. Of what it means, it's more than, hey, come to my revival in two weeks. We're going to have revival at our church here in a couple of months. If, if, if you can plan it, it's not revival. Revival is when man steps into the background and God takes the field. <laughs> it's when God takes the field. And I got so wrecked, and that's probably my deepest connection to Billy. We've been all running together for the last 16 years, and we, he, him and his family came to uh, Kansas City for a year in 2003, and we quickly, like two, you know, magnets just immediately found each other. And we were sitting in a McDonald's having a burger and starting to share stories. And what we found in that moment is that the deepest thing, if you were to cut me, the deepest thing that I long for, it's for true revival in my generation. For a true visitation from God, habitation, ultimately him coming, and nothing has so connected me and Billy because it's really hard to find people that really believe in this. It's really hard to get a vision for revival and not let go of it through all the ups and the downs, the sideways, the disappointments, the uh, trials of this life that want you to dumb it down and to move into survival. But the deepest cry for revival has been in my bones from day one of my salvation. I believe in God taking over cities. I believe that. That statement sounds radical, and we love to preach it. It sounds great. But I literally believe in God and his manifest presence taking over cities, over regions, where there is a manifest spirit of conviction. A manifest spirit of conviction. To where in habitations and zones of the glory of God, no pedophile ring can exist. No human trafficking ring can exist. No drug ring can exist. No domestic violence can exist. That the spirit of conviction humbles, and I believe deeply in that. It's what the book of Acts is all about. At the end of the day, it's God taking over cities. <laughs> it's exactly it. Gives me a lap too. You got Jerusalem on it. You got Thessalonica. They're preaching another Caesar another King Jesus, and they're turning the world upside down. This is my definition of revival. It's those divine seasons when God openly manifests the rule and the reign of his son by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and apostolic preaching. I'm going to say that again. I don't see nobody taking notes, so you better have good memories. All right, good. We got one right here. Good. Revival are those divine seasons. Everybody say seasons. Amen. Acts 3.19 says that there will be times and seasons, times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. Okay? 
He says, repent, be baptized, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus. That's the progression. Get saved, get glory, get Jesus. <laughs> Divine seasons, they're times. I don't believe, I mean, I believe as we steadily get closer to the coming of the Lord, they're going to increase in their frequency and in their length as we see the contraction seasons get thinner and thinner and thinner unto the coming of the Lord. So you got to see revival and the aching. It's the thinning of the veil between heaven and earth, God and man, and that thinning of the veil are like contractions. <laughs> yeah. We've had four children. I've said by all of them, the intensity of the contractions. Yeah, I'm in the middle of my definition on revival. <laughs> you know, because that's literally is travail, is the language of revival. There are divine seasons when God openly, now right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now, he's far above every power, principality, ruler, and dominion. He has all power, all glory, but it's not always openly manifest. Revival is when God flexes, and he puts a spotlight on what is reality to bring the church forward into maturity, to prepare the church and cure the church of her earthliness and awaken longing for heaven. There are divine seasons when God openly manifests the rule and the reign of his son. Do you understand that for those three and a half years, Jesus was a walking tornado? Nobody could stop him. The devil, he said, it ain't your time. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Trampling, it's the season of the trampling. It's the season of the destruction of the works of the darkness. Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. For this reason was the Son of Man made manifest to destroy the works of the devil. There is a season of the tornado. There is a season of the battering ram. There is a season when God sweeps through with effortless force, and it's the whispers now become bats that break all opposition to pieces. It's not about new methods. It's not about how, how attractive the, 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 the preacher is and how polished the presentation is. It's not about how articulate I can say it. It's not about my ability to pontificate and execute and elocute a passage. It's not about man's ability. It's about God stepping down, taking weak words, and matching it with supernatural power. That's what we long for, and I want you to know, and I'm trying to infect as many in my generation with the virus for revival. Because we're hearing lots of other things. We'll call it revival if a couple of people fall down. Man, we're in revival. We're even hearing some today saying, I don't need to pray for revival because I am revival. What in the world is that? Get away from any of that you hear. Well, saying then praise God, can we bring you down here to the cancer ward and you just empty it out right now? Would you do that for us? Since you're a walking revival, of course you take your hands out of your pocket. You labor, but I believe that there, are, there is a realm of power that is still waiting, and this kind only comes by prayer and fasting. You tell Charles Finney, he's a, he don't have to pray or fast for revival. You tell Frank Bartleman in Azusa Street and William Seymour, if he doesn't have to, you don't tell me about about Evan Roberts. You don't tell me about Duncan Campbell. You don't tell me about the great revivalist of history. You don't got to fast and pray for it. You got it. <clears throat> oh, I believe he wants to wound you with this. There are divine seasons. Jerusalem, Thessalonica, Acts 19, Ephesus. 
12 goes to 25,000 people in a matter of two years. Okay? <laughs> it says that they were burning all their witchcraft books and throwing, they were throwing them into the middle of the city square and burning all the witchcraft books. You know, I can't even imagine what it would look like for God to visit Atlanta and for them to have public iPhone burnings because of pornography and what it's doing to a generation. Or God to visit Las Vegas and they start demolishing casinos because all the casino open, uh, owners are getting saved. No, I'm not playing. Translate Acts 19 to our society. Paul goes into the quarter of Queen Diana, the ancient Queen Diana worship center, and bankrupts the idol industry by the preaching of Jesus Christ. It says a phrase in Acts 19 that the word of the Lord, Lord grew mightily and prevailed in Ephesus. What would it look like if the word of the Lord prevailed in Atlanta? The word of God prevailed. Nobody could stop this irresistible force. We see it all through history. And over the last couple hundred years, what you see is that God will begin to stir up a vision. I'd encourage you to get a hold of revival history and begin to read it. God, we begin to read it. There have been two great awakenings in this nation. There was a first great awakening during the 1700s. Men like Jonathan Edwards, John and Charles Wesley, man by the name of David Brainerd. He would preach in New Jersey among the Native American tribes. He, he died at 29 years old of tuberculosis. He would go out, and his only interpreter was a drunk translator who would preach. So these people would be an idolatrous feast, and he would start preaching to them through a drunk translator. So they didn't have an anointed worship set to prepare the atmosphere. <laughs> and he says, I would simply declare the compassion and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I told them of the compassion of Jesus, it made them more miserable and they felt unworthy to come to such a kind Savior. He says, I was speaking to 40 and 37 of the 40 had like an irresistible force that knocked all of them down and they were aggravated and they were underneath a deep wailing and groaning. And he said, I saw little kids, five and six years old, crying out for the badness of their hearts. That's called the spirit of conviction. I want you to say the word conviction. It's coming back to the church. It's coming back to the church. Holiness. The holy, talking about you, I'm talking about God. There was another one in the 1800s, upstate New York, saw 500,000 new converts in a matter of eight weeks. There have been moves of God. 1904, God began to grip a young man in Wells. He saw a map of Wells set on fire. He saw a map of Wells set on fire, and God says, I'll give you 100,000 souls in one year. 100, I'm not talking about church growth transfer. I'm not talking about, well, they got it going on down there. Let's take all of our tithe and go down there. I'm talking about 100,000 newcomers. Evan Roberts began to pace up and down for 13 hours a day. He would pace in his room and begin to pray for this move of God. The woman underneath him thought he was going insane, and he would pray and pray and pray. And from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. every night, Jesus would manifest himself to him and visit with him. Think of Jesus woke you up at 1 a.m. every morning. He got so gripped, and in 1904, they saw the fire of God hit wells. They shut down everything common, and it revolutionized. 
that nation. It's like the move of God went from Wales and it went to Los Angeles. I love the, the outpouring of Azusa Street. It started with a black man blind and one-eyed Baptist pastor in Houston, Texas, William Seymour. He was blind in one eye, and yet he believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And God, he was praying five hours a day for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God led him to Los Angeles. He says, God, what do you want me to do? Pick it up to seven hours. <laughs> he ends up encountering another man, Frank Bartleman, and they saw a move of God hit Los Angeles that we are reaping the fruits from for today. Over a three-and-a-half-year period from 1906 to 1909, the fire and the glory of God hit Los Angeles in such power and such glory. There have been moves of God through history. Anyway, are y'all with me? Late 1940s, Hebrides Islands off of Scotland. An old woman and two old women, one 84 80, and the other one 82. One bent over with arthritis, the other one blind. And they began to pray that God would send a messenger to the island. They began to pray that God would send this man by the name of Duncan Campbell. They sent him letters, said, you need to come over here. He goes, I can't get there now. They go, you need to hear from God and get over here now. He ended up coming, says, I'll give you one night. Ended up staying for a long time. One of his stories is that he's wakened at 3 a.m. one morning. As God invaded the island, he says, I'm awakened at 3 a.m., and the police chief shows up at his door, and they're walking to the police station. And he says, and outside, everybody's outside their house, and they're leaning over hay bales, crying and weeping out to God, under conviction, and, and crying out to God for mercy. He gets to the police station, it's completely packed, and he begins to interview one of the guys inside of it and says, why are you here? He goes, I don't know. All that I know is that everything I've ever done wrong was made manifest to me. And I knew I had to turn myself into the cops. Now just think, within a five-mile radius of this building, what would happen if everything that everybody within a five-mile radius had ever done was exposed and made manifest to them? I believe that. I believe that God is going to visit us in a powerful way, a glorious way. I don't, it's, gonna, it, it's not about living in the past. But at the same time, it gives us frameworks and grids of ideas of what it looks like when God steps down. And it delivers us from the deception of thinking we're walking in something when we're not touching anything at all. And it causes us to begin to say, God, I want the fullness of what you'll release in my generation. I want the fullness of what you'll release in my generation. Because I believe that he wants to visit our nation again. I believe he's going to visit the globe. I quoted it this morning, Acts 2, 17. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I want to look at Hosea 10, verse 12. Because when we begin to talk about revival praying, we're going to talk about prayer on the other side of prayer. Look at this verse that's just amazing in the middle of a mostly judgment book and about how a nation is reaping judgment because they've sown judgment. Hosea is going to drop this glorious pearl this glorious hope anchor to the redeemed that if in the middle that there is a way to break the cycle of judgment by seeing a cycle of mercy released in their generation look at this verse in verse 12 so for yourselves righteousness reap in mercy and then he says this phrase he says break up your fallow ground He's going to liken our hearts to soil. And in the same way 
that soil gets hardened and it gets fallow and it requires a tilling. So Hosea is going to say to us, you break up your fallow ground. He says, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes. I believe that we're in a divine window right now in the earth. I'm so grateful for all that God is doing at New Bridge. But I know that there's always general time of seeking the Lord. We all know, praise the Lord, it's always a good time to seek the Lord. But who in here knows that there are divine windows? There are divine times, divine windows where God says, I want more than just a general seeking, but I want an intentional and deliberate seeking of me. I want you to lean in to me, and I want you to seek me in a more focused way. And I want you to break up the fallow ground of your heart. I don't know about you, but the Christian walk has this. What, he'll, what I've found in my life, that whenever God wants to birth a new season, he'll birth a new hunger. And he'll always start the work of disillusionment. He'll first... Get you disillusioned over your current state of intimacy, your current state of aliveness in the Bible, your current state of holiness, things that you used to do effortlessly. Now you find yourself, you just found yourself gorging on things you never would have thought about doing in a previous season. And the nature of the heart is that we get hard, dull, we get indifferent, we get used to whatever we were walking in, and we begin to coast. We will begin to coast in forms and we'll settle into it. I know seasons in my life I got so desperate, I care less who knew me, I go after him, and then it breaks me through into a new season of intimacy, holiness, revelation, and all of a sudden things start flowing out of me. Books start flying, CDs start buying, revelation. I look at the Bible, I get four sermons. You're flying, you're praying, you say, gee, and you're already crying. But after a while, I've seen it happen in my own life, you begin to coast in that mode for a season, and over time, you begin to slower and slower and subtle. The subtle nature of the heart is that it begins to coast. And whenever God wants to birth you into a new season, he will come and rattle your cage and saying it's time to get back to the things that you were doing when nobody knew about you. You're starting to believe the own hype about yourself. You're starting to pay attention to the comments on Instagram and Facebook. You're starting to live in the memory of, and you, you think that you're at today where you were five years ago, but you're not on fire anymore. And so the Lord loves to first come and rattle your cage. And he says, let's get back to some of the things we used to do. And I want you to break up the fallow ground. That fallow ground is ground that was useful in a previous season. But it's going to require a fresh tilling of the soil so you can move into the next season. Are you with me tonight? Break it up, break it up, break it up. It's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Do you know what I love about Hosea 10 verse 12? God doesn't dance with mannequins. Now, first off, that's weird. God has a part and you have a part. He says, you break up, sow, and seek, and I'll send rain. You can't do my part, and I won't do your part. And I want to give you, I believe that God is releasing three gifts in the aiding of the breaking up of our fallow ground. Okay, he's, gonna, he's helping us. He's releasing three gifts, and if you want them, they're coming to you tonight. If you want them, they're coming to you tonight. Something will begin tonight. 
that will manifest over the coming days, weeks, months. If you want them, they're here. I believe he's releasing the gift of tears to tenderize the soil of your heart. I believe he's releasing the gift of tongues to till up the soil of your heart. And I believe he's releasing the gift of travail to tear the soil of your heart. Tears, tongues, and travail. This is what revival praying looks like. It's word, it's prayer on the other side of prayer. It's words when you don't have words. It's language when you don't have a language but a groan. And I believe that God's been bring, he's been starving the church out over the last decade. And he's bringing the church to a place of desperation, need. He's bringing us to our knees so that he can awaken prayer. Many of us have had delayed promises. There have been promises that you've heard from God and that you thought it was going to look a certain way and your life went a different direction. Maybe a specific promise. I'm just going to prophesy to you guys, okay? Gift of tears are coming to the church. We're going to cry again. We're going to feel again. I believe we're in a John 11 Lazarus season. You know John 11? What happens when the people that Jesus loves, his friends, send report to Jesus that one of their best friends, that one of their good friends is sick? Jesus gets the letter. They know he got the letter. And he waits on purpose until that friend has gone ahead and died before Jesus shows up. What do you do when Jesus is four days late? What do you do when he's four days late? You guys with me? Well, we know he's not late. We know, but he is. He's, he's not in his timing, but he's in ours. And when it comes to our timing, that's when the breaking point is. Lord, he whom you love is sick. Jesus, when he got this, he says a very definitive statement from the very beginning. For this reason, he goes this. He goes, what does he say? Look with me in John 11. Come on, come on, come on. I feel like I'm losing you. I want you to run with me here. John 11. Here he goes. That's it. He gives a definitive, clear statement. The faith preacher is about to release an oracle over your life. This sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. From the very beginning, get a hold of this. From the very beginning, he makes a clear, definitive statement about how this is going to end. He knows what he's going to do. He's already seeing Lazarus coming out of the grave, and he's saying this is not going to end in death. He didn't say he wouldn't die. He says that won't be the end of the story, and Jesus makes a clear, definitive statement of what he's going to do. This is what gets me. We know what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to do. And then look at the very next verse in verse 5. Now Jesus loved. Everybody say he loved. We know Jesus loved everybody, but he really loved them. Jesus loved Martha and, his, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That doesn't make sense. If he loved them, he would translate to Bethany, lay his hand on his sick friend. They would get up and have a dance party. That's what love looks like. Love looks like immediate breakthrough and the alleviation of the pain so we can enter into destiny and sing our revival songs. But what happens with the ones that he loves? See, Jesus doesn't do this to strangers or Pharisees or sinners. He doesn't do it with the lost or somebody else. He does it with people he loves. Whew. 
And you've got to understand the intimate ones got to go through this. There's something about the intimate ones that he brings you into this place of God. I know you got it. I know you can break in. Why aren't you? See, this is where revival prayer is born. This is where revival prayer is born, is what happens when he stays two more days. Two types of responses. And we're about to see them manifested within Martha and within Mary. There's probably another response, and it's the slow and subtle disconnection from your heart and running off to the bar or running off to somewhere to medicate your pain. But what you see with Martha and Mary, what happens? Who in here knows what I'm talking about? Something where you've cried out to God for a breakthrough, maybe in a marriage, maybe with children that grew up, that you heard promises over them in the womb that God was going to make them a prophet in this generation. Maybe you heard it over a daughter. Maybe you heard it over your marriage that you and your spouse would move in God and ministry together, and now the other spouse is disconnected because life didn't look the way he or she thought it was going to look. Or what do you look like when the things that you've heard the deepest in the core of your being, Jesus doesn't show up and immediately alleviate the problem? What happens in that place? What happens in that pain of how to reconcile? I know who you are, but yet I don't know how to reconcile what you're not doing. And that tension, and that right there is the home of the intercessor that refuses to get out of the tension and saying, I know who you are. I know who I am to you, but where are you? And this is where he deliver us from pretty praying. Having it all together, bumper sticker Christianity. Praise the Lord. He's going to break in. Bobbleheads. I call it bobblehead Christianity. <laughs> it's a new one. What happens? I'll tell you two types of response, and you see them manifested in Martha and Mary. Friend, I want you to know that if you're going through a similar season, he must count you a friend. Because we don't see him doing this to a Pharisee. We don't see him doing it to a, to a stranger or a sinner. Go ahead and skip down with me to verse 17. So now he's going to show up, and it's going to be about four days late. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Everybody say four days, which means he's good, buried, stinking, and it's a pretty much a final situation. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews that joined the women around Martha and Mary came, converting. Now Martha, as soon, now that's a key word, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But here's Mary again. Mary was sitting in the house. I picture it like this. They're in the house grieving, and Martha's like this. Where's he at? He, I know he got the letter. He didn't break in in time. I don't know where he's at. I don't know what's going on with him. What is wrong with him? He, oh, ma'am, my goodness, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to say. He's here. Bang. And she takes off. As soon as she heard he had come into town, bang, she bolts. And I think this is profound right here because it takes us back to Luke 10. Do you know what happened the first time that, that Jesus came into Bethany? Do you know what Martha was caught up in? It says that she was busy and troubled and anxiety filled her over much serving. And that the Son of God is in her house and she, she could not discern the moment. And she was caught in the swirl around Jesus. And she never learned how to sit at the feet of Jesus. 
and to get into the waiting room of priesting before God and letting him define the terms of relationship. She was caught in the swirl. She was worried, troubled, busy, anxious, and she never learned kindergarten, therefore she couldn't handle the next season. If you can't learn how to come out of the swirl of today and like Mary, sit at his feet and hear his word. If you can't, if you can't learn to tell people no, I can't do that. I can't go there. I've got to prioritize a time and a place of sitting. Because every time you see Mary, she's always sitting. Mary didn't say a word. All she did in Luke 10 was this, and she let Jesus fight her battles. Jesus will always fight Mary's battles. He'll always defend you. See, this is what happened with Martha in Luke 10. If you make what you do for Jesus your primary reward, hear me, it's not about Mary versus Martha. It's about Mary before Martha. And if you make what you do for Jesus your primary reward, you will begin to question his compassion, fairness, and empathy and get angry at him when he doesn't reward you based on how hard you've worked for him. Lord, don't you care? I mean, think about telling Jesus, you need to work on your compassion. You need to work on your, your empathy and your fairness. You're not fair. You owe me. And you're letting her get away with sitting at your feet. This is what else happens to Martha's. You compare yourself, and you'll always be the winner of working harder than everybody else. All right, that's, that, we'll just leave Luke 10 alone. All I'm trying to let you know is the same thing is going on in Luke 10 that's manifesting in John 11. Because if you don't learn how to come out of today's swirls, when real storms come, it's going to catch you up. Where's he at? Where's he at? And offense, accusation, anger, frustration, empathy, and you will begin to accuse the Lord instead of waiting on him. You'll, this is what Martha does. She rushes right into the doctor's office. Mary will get called in. And what I love about this whole story is they're going to say the same phrase. Look at this. Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha came to Jesus. Look with me. Come on, let's all run. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know. Everybody say, I know. When someone tells you they know, they don't know. I'll tell you what's going on right here. What I believe is happening right here. You have two temptations. There's a, there's a temptation in the delay. And the temptation is this. Keep outward forms perfect. Have it all together. And it's filled with all the things that you know while your heart is disengaged from living in the tension. Martha refused to live in the tension, and she rested on her nice little bumper stickers and T-shirts and bobblehead Christianity instead of letting the moment cut her that her brother had, had died, and Jesus didn't do anything about it. But I know that right now, whatever you ask God, God will give you. I love Jesus. He's just stone cold. Your brother will rise again. Just I know, read it, I know. Again, whenever they say that I know, they don't know. That's usually my first test when somebody tells me they know, they don't know. Because we're dealing with mystery here. We're dealing with mystery. We're dealing with tensions. The answer isn't I know, the answer is I don't know. And I don't know how to reconcile this but I ain't going anywhere. Uh, 
I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. That's good theology. He goes, honey, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just coming, it's here. And I'm looking for you to do more than just ask me to ask God. I'm trying to pull you into the tension where you begin to lay hold of resurrection life. See, this is the thing that hits me. Come on. This is the thing that hits me. Jesus knows what he's going to do, but he doesn't translate to the resurrection. He's going to let the process play out. Because he's looking for something in the valley to escort him into resurrection season. I know that he will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? I love Jesus. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. Those are three awesome things. You can ask God. He'll give it to you. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Bang, all of the right Bible verses, all the right confessions, and she hits a wall. Nothing happening. They're just talking theology. At that moment, look at what the Bible says. At that moment, verse 28, it says, when she had said these things, she went her way and she secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and he's calling for you. <laughs> I can't get us out of this mess. I got to go back to Luke 10. I made fun of you earlier. I'm going to go learn that. He's looking for you, honey. I believe God, I believe we're about to see resurrection power release, guys. I want you to know this. But he's calling for the Marys. Look at verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him. And what did she do after that? She fell down at his feet. Here here she is again at his feet. Martha said the statement face to face. She said it filled with confidence, filled with right theology. Mary at his feet, weeping, saying the exact same phrase as Martha. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Which means I don't understand what's happened. Why didn't you get here on time? Why didn't you get here on time? Why didn't you break in? I don't understand it. I know who you are. You are the healer. You are the restorer. You are the deliverer. You are the mighty God. You are the everlasting father. You are the resurrection. You are the deliverer. Everything that you said, I believe it, but I don't understand why you didn't do it. I know who I am to you. I'm your beloved. Two people, because I want to tell you right now, it's not about having the right prayer. It's about where the prayer comes from. (laughs) Everybody tries to get the right form. If I learn to pray this way, then all the ancient doors will open. He's just asking a simple question. Will you let it cut you? Will you let it cut you? Will you let it get up into your business? And you actually pray from a deeper place. Crazy verse. Get your seatbelt on. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who were with her weeping, the Bible says he groaned in the spirit. See, I believe God wants to awaken prayers that awaken a groan in God. He groaned in the spirit, and he was troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we see the longest verse in the Bible. For years, I thought that was a sniffle. I thought it was a small tear that slipped up on Jesus. 
but I'm convinced that was probably closer to 15 to 30 minutes of the Son of God heaving and weeping and sobbing as a storm came out of him. And in front of all the eyes of the world, God wept. He wept, he wept, he wept. It was tears of anger, tears of sorrow, tears of compassion, tears of love, tears of hatred of death. It was tears that flowed out of the Son of God and the world watched him, and he allowed them to give their critiques and for them to give their analysis of what he was doing. The vulnerability of God. See, that's the secret of John eleven thirty five. 35. God got vulnerable, and this will be the seedbed to resurrection power. There is a revelation of the vulnerability of God. Jesus wept. They watched him. Some said he loved Lazarus. Others said, why didn't he get here earlier? Do you understand that the resurrection of Lazarus will be the beginning of Jesus' own death? It was this miracle that tipped over every domino. It was this. He wept, he wept, he wept. Hear me. I, I just want to say it to you as simple as I can. The vulnerable God is inviting you into vulnerability in this season. He's inviting you past all your fake smiles and living at a distance with all the right phrases. He's inviting you for deliverance from all your fake smiles and your anger and your accusation against God for why he did or allowed or da-da-da-da-da, and he's wanting to bring you into a place of intercession that weeps with him and that gets into the tension. He's delivering us from pretty praying, and he's bringing us into ugly praying. Mascara is going to start flowing. Hair's going to get ugly. It's going to be uncomfortable as we get into a vulnerability that we've never touched before. He weeps, he weeps, he weeps. He then comes out of the weeping. I love it. It's almost, I see him coming out of the weeping, and he's coming out with a man on fire and on mission. I see him. He goes, take away the stone. And now you're about to see faith-filled Martha and all of her faith on full display. Lord, by this time, he stinks. I thought you believed, honey. thought you led the faith crew. You believe God can do anything. Hallelujah. Why would that bother you if he stinks? Because I didn't really believe you are going to do it today. Actually, in my heart, I just reserved it to the resurrection of the dead. I don't believe you can resurrect this dead marriage. I don't believe you can resurrect my dead son my dead daughter, my dead finances, that dead body. I don't believe you can resurrect today. It's always safe to that Jesus will do it someday. It gets messy when you actually dare to believe he can do it too. That's when it gets messy. It's safe. I can put it out there and leave it there. Hallelujah. I'm good. I'm just trusting on the, on the way. You can always trust on the way, but the weeping and revival praying is I'm not content for it someday. I'm going to lay hold of that to bring someday into today. And that tension is where it gets ugly and messy and reconciling the two. And most believers are content up there no matter what they say with their mouths. Most of them have reserved it. It ain't really going to happen or change. <clears throat> take away the stone. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? The glory of God. 
Then he lifted his eyes to his father. He goes, Father, I thank you that you hear me. You always hear me. And when he had said this, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who had been dead for four days. Guys, we just read these like nice little Disney stories. A real man who had been dead for four days walked up out of a cave fully laid, mummified in linens and everything else, and he walked out of the cave. A real man who kept on living, who kept on living, a real resurrection. I believe with all of my heart, I'm putting it all in that we are in the season of resurrection, that we are going to see resurrection to things, to relationships, to circumstances, to situations that have been dead. I believe that the vulnerable God is going to release an intercessory movement, and we're going to see Lazarus's come forth again. Resurrections in denominations Resurrections in families, resurrections. Families that haven't spoken in 20 years, resurrections. Marriages that haven't had true intimacy in 20 years, resurrection. Resurrection for kids bound in drugs for 20 years, resurrections. Hallelujah. Resurrections to finances that were betrayed and stolen from you. And I believe it's about God delivering us and bringing us to a place of desperation, a new place of prayer. Why do you cry? There's lots of reasons we cry. Tears are such a strange phenomenon. What happens in the soul when you start crying? What language are our tears? What do our tears say to God? <clears throat> Hallelujah. I believe he's releasing the gift of tears. It's a revelation of your inability to change anything. It's a revelation of your inability to change anything. He's going to release tears again. Hallelujah. I'm not talking about depression. I'm talking about the tension of true faith. Hallelujah. I believe that he's breaking off the funk off the church. I'm going to share one story. I don't think I've ever shared it here. I, I could talk about this. The Lord showed me about 25 aspects of tears in the Word of God. I'm working on writing on this right now. 2011, me and my good buddy, Alan Hood, were in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and we uh, had come to a conference. We had just come out of that awakening season, and we had gone to a, uh, a Fredericksburg to do a conference together. We got in that night, and the seasons were changing. We've come out of the intense awakening, and now we're feeling increased warfare, temptation, pressure. Alan's body's breaking down. We're feeling stuff. And so we're in the hotel room that night praying for each other and weeping together. And we go to bed that night, and Alan says, God, would you talk to me and give me a dream of what's going on? I go to my hotel room. He has a dream that night. And in the dream, in, in natural, in reality, he had written an article in ministry today out of the book of Joel called Standing at the Critical Juncture and how we're at a critical hour in America's history, and that it's an hour to enter into corporate prayer and fasting for the outpouring of the Spirit and for the pushing back of unrighteousness. He had saw the article in his dream, and then he saw the comment boxes underneath the dream, and he saw the comment boxes being witches and warlocks that were cursing leaders and their marriages and families. He clicks on one of the boxes, goes into the box, and encounters this warlock who's wrapped with a python, has pornography behind him, and the dude is cursing him. And Alan hears a voice behind him, and he says, Alan, it's witchcraft. It's witchcraft. 
The next scene happens, and he sees thousands upon thousands of young people, and he sees me and a man by the name of Bob Jones embrace one another, and we begin to declare a phrase out of Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for us. For you who don't know who Bob Jones is, he's a prophetic man that God raised off his deathbed in 1975. He literally saw it in 1974. He saw a day to where the homosexuals would be parading in the streets. And he saw an, about an over-the-counter abortion pill. And he began to preach and proclaim this. And the devil said, you keep preaching this, I'll kill you. He said, well, I ain't your territory anymore. I'm not your property. Bring it. Well, he's out working in the field one day, and he literally has a heart attack, and he dies. And he goes before the Lord, and the Lord sends him back into his body and says, I want you to go prepare some of my end-time leaders and movements to prepare for what I'm about to do across the earth. And he was sent, and he was integral in the establishing of the House of Prayer in Kansas City with Rick Joyner in North Carolina, as well as many across the earth. He's been used as a prophetic man, and for 30 years we had heard stories from Mike Bickle about the power and the influence of this man. We had never met him. We'd only heard stories. And in this dream, he see, Alan sees me and Bob Jones embrace one another, which I see the season of the inheriting of the promises. It's when the prophecies and the promises become reality. I get excited about prophecies, but there's another part of me that says, God, I'm tired of promises. Bring it. Bring it. Well, Alan wakes up, excited, runs down to my hotel room, get up, let's have breakfast. The Lord's spoken. We run to breakfast. He starts telling me the whole dream. And as he gets to the end part, me and Bob Jones embracing one another, a woman comes, taps him on the shoulder, and says, hey, are you Alan Hood? He goes, yes, ma'am. She goes, hi, my name is Bonnie Jones, and me and my husband Bob would like to have breakfast with you too. Yes, that Bob Jones. We had no clue he was there. I didn't even know what was going on. I am freaking out. You feel like you're in the twilight zone? You're dealing with the seer like this. I said, I need to quickly go have a quiet time. I don't want him reading my mail. Let me go. We sat down with him for two hours, and for about the first hour and a half, I didn't understand a word he said. He's a seer, so he'll talk to you about things he's seeing in the spirit, and everybody else thinks they see like he sees, but they don't. I mean, he's just talking craziness. That makes no sense to me, but I just had a real deep look on my face going, ooh, that's good, that's good. That's what you do when you're around those people, ooh, that's good, but you ain't got a clue what's going on. He gets to the end, and he looked back at it. He's from Arkansas, right down the road from where I was born and raised, and he goes, yeah, you boys been preaching Joel. He just stood back. You boys been preaching Joel, and I see witchcraft come against you. Witchcraft's come against you. And then he looked at me. He goes, I see python marks in your neck. He says, I thought that only revival was coming, but actually revival and judgment's coming. He says, we got to proclaim both, revival and judgment. Alan had heard stories of ministers that were under intense warfare, and Bob would pray for them and break it off. So Alan stopped Bob saying, Bob, would you pray for us? And Bob goes, I'm not going to, no, I ain't going to do that. He goes, what do you think I've been doing for the last two hours? We looked at each other, talking, I don't know. And then he looked at us, and it just absolutely blew me away. He goes, you boys have been weeping, haven't you? We go, yeah, we were just weeping last night. He goes, you see, witchcraft gets in your eyes. And what it does is it makes you look on your past seasons as if you've never done anything for God. And then it steals the hope of future seasons, and it makes you think you'll never do anything for God. He said, but weeping? 
Weeping gets the witchcraft out of your eyes. He, and I'll never forget it. He goes, you boys are going to be okay. Your ministries are good. You have no idea how many times over the last seven years I've heard Bob Jones's voice in my ear saying, you boys are going to be okay. Am I going to make it? You boys are going to be okay. Witchcraft gets the we weeping gets the witchcraft out of your eyes. Weeping gets the witchcraft out of your eyes. Weeping breaks the funk and the confusion and the lies. It breaks the perspective of yourself and of others. It breaks the accusation. It gets you out of the accuser of the brethren room, and it gets you into the agreement with heaven room. It washes your eyes so you can ascend above the storm and connect with Abba, connect with the Son, see his purpose, and move with him. Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues filled with singing. And we said, the Lord has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things for them. It says it among the nations. Then he says this, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping shall doubtless come again rejoicing, carrying his sheaves with him. Ho! Ho! Harvest! Harvest! This has been a decade of weeping for me. But I believe we're moving into this, the decade of joy and rejoicing. I believe we're moving into a season of harvest and reaping and joy and singing and laughter. Jesus, I want to ask him right now that he would release the gift of tears upon Hallelujah. Just stand across the room. We're going to pray for you right now. Oh.